Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Jimmy. and I don't know how to use a stand. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Missio Day Uptown, and we are so thankful you are here this morning. Um, I love like when Chris is like, go to Jimmy for announcements because after announcements, because it like makes me feel like I know so much, but really I know like six things and those were two of those six things. So thank you, Chris. Uh, Jason, I don't know what you said, man. We're just, I'm just kidding. Uh, All right. Uh, Hey, but also Chris was like, you guys don't respond. You know, you're allowed to respond a little bit this morning. Show him too, right? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. Um, Hey, I... I want to bring you back to the year 1998. You see, in 1998, my seven-year-old life changed forever when I watched one of the greatest movies I'd ever seen up until that point, a movie that was probably um, contributed a lot to my radicalization. The movie is called A Bug's Life. Now, if you don't know or don't remember the plot of A Bug's Life, um, our main character is an ant named Flick, right? And Flick lives in an ant colony obviously on Ant Island, that has one particular issue, right? A gang of grasshoppers, much bigger and stronger than them, take a percentage of the food they collect every summer. Now, Flick is an incredibly inventive ant, but he's also a little bit naive and clumsy, right? And apologies for the spoilers, but again, this came out in 1998. I don't know where you've been. Um, He creates this device that collects food much quicker for the ants, But in his demonstration of the device, he destroys the food offering that they had collected for the ants. They lose it all. And when the grasshoppers find out, they demand twice as much food in a much smaller amount of time, right? You guys did not know that when they hired me as pastor, I would just sit here and explain Pixar movies, did you? Uh, Anyways, Flick decides that he's going to end the oppression by the grasshoppers once and for all. He decides that he is going to travel to find bugs that are bigger and stronger than the grasshoppers to liberate the ants from these grasshoppers, right? This is wild because none of the ants have ever left Ant Island and have been able to come back. But the colony was so sick of Flick's antics that they acted like they believed in them. And they were like, yeah, you go, buddy. You go find other people. Because they were worried that he was going to get in the way of them collecting the food again, right? As Flick departs from his journey, a few of the kids join him, a few of the ant kids join him as he walks out. One kid says, my dad thinks that you're going to come back in an hour and cry. And, you know, he kind of laughs it off. And then the other kid says, my my dad doesn't think that. And Flick is like, awesome. He's like, because my dad thinks you're going to die, right? Flick then laughs it off until he gets to the top of a mountain uh, that they're on. And he overlooks the entire area beyond Ant Mountain, or Ant Island. And in that moment, I think Flick considers the jeers of the children and maybe his own internal voice, if ants have those. And and it's telling him, like, it isn't worth it. It's not worth going, right? He considers these things, and yet, Flick grabs a dandelion, jumps off the mountain, and yells, for the colony and for oppressed ants everywhere, right? And then you can, you can watch the rest. But what you, you see, in this moment of consideration, Flick was doing something that a lot of us have never really sat down to do. I think Flick was counting the cost, right? 
He weighed what this trip to liberate his fellow ants might end up costing him. It could cost him his reputation, his contribution to the gathering of the food. It could have even cost him his life. And yet, Flick decided that the cost of risking his life was worth the liberation of the colony, right? This morning, as we continue to explore the Moses story in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses gets to one of the first main obstacles in the liberation of the Israelites, right? And so we're going to explore what it looks like for Moses and then for us to count the cost. But first, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the movie A Bug's Life. It is a, it's a great movie. Um, Lord, we, we just pray this morning that uh, what is said, what is remembered is from you and not from me. That I'm about your glory, not mine. Your name, Lord, not mine. So help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and reorient ourselves and sort of hit on some of the main things that we read in the passage. So last week, uh, our other pastor, Pastor Tiana, preached his second sermon on Moses' first encounter with God, when, when Moses uh, encounters God in the burning bush. And then in the encounter, God confirmed that he hears the cries of the people of Israel who are currently enslaved in Egypt, and he calls Moses to go and liberate these people from Egypt, right, from the slavery. Now, Moses denies God a few times, gives him some bad excuses, but God persistently calls on Moses, says, I'm going to be the one who liberates them. You're just going to be the one who goes, right? And eventually, they get to a point, uh, God is like, okay, I'll send your brother Aaron with you, and Moses goes. Moses then meets with the Israel elders, tells them that he is there to set them free, and then that's where we arrive today, right? With Moses and Aaron meeting with the Pharaoh. Now, we just read this, but I'm going to go ahead and re-explain it. Moses, or the meeting with the Pharaoh did not necessarily go as planned, did it? Moses and Aaron tell the Pharaoh they want to take the people to a ceremony in the wilderness. I don't really know what's going on with that. We don't have time this morning, right? Uh, but Pharaoh is like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. And as a result of the request, Pharaoh then doubles the uh, work of the Israelites, right? And even as he doubles it, he calls the Israelites lazy, and how do the Israelites respond? Well, first they go to the um, Pharaoh, but then he doesn't budge. And so then they go to Moses and Aaron. And they go to Moses and Aaron because they know the request of these two is the reason their work has doubled. And so they curse Moses and Aaron. They curse them and they call on God to judge them, right? Now, just step back for a second and consider like Moses' position. This has got to be confusing, Right? Moses had just met a burning bush that talks to him and is like, I am God, I am Yahweh, I am who I am. Now go liberate the, the Egyptians, right? And so Moses says no, but then he's like, fine, I'll go. He gets there, and yet he does what God says, and things seem to only get worse. Not only does the work double, but the people he's there to help are mad at him too, right? You see, I believe what Moses is experiencing and what we're going to explore this morning is a reality of justice work. Justice and liberation are always costly for those seeking it because they attempt to restore to those who are oppressed what the oppressors have taken from them. And so naturally, what happens? The oppressors, in this case Pharaoh, the Egyptians, take measures against acts of justice 
to ensure that the status quo that is benefiting the oppressor does not change, right? Let's talk about racial justice for a moment. Racial justice, I feel like, has become a bit in vogue in the last decade or so in our nation. Become a, it's become a bit more popular in our current cultural context, particularly in cities like Chicago, to say that we care about racial justice, right? And I just want to be clear, racial justice being more accepted as a talking point or a topic of discussion is a good thing. That's a good thing that it's, it's like more readily talked about, right? But I think as a result of the popularity, I think we truly don't count the cost of justice because we have made it a bit more easy and comfortable to make it look like we care about issues of justice, right? What, what does this look like? What am I talking about? This has often looked like posting black squares on social media while ignoring the black voices around us, right? It has looked like cheering on Black Panther in the box office while black men are still incarcerated at a 33% rate. I lost my spot. Uh, it has looked like putting up Black Lives Matter signs in our houses while the population of people who are unhoused continues to grow, right? Again, I'm not saying our acts of small justice or in letting our, no our friends know that we care, those are not inherently bad. But when we stopped our justice efforts at one Facebook post in the summer of 2020, we participated in performative justice, not impactful justice, right? So with that, I want to count the cost this morning. I want to quickly run through what costly justice might cost us. And then I want to talk about why that cost is worth it. The first thing that, costly ju or that justice might cost us is relationships. Uh, I want to tell a little bit of a story. Uh, in five years of college ministry, I worked with a lot of different types of guys uh, with a lot of different types of backgrounds. But one of my favorite years, uh, no offense, I don't, was my last year in ministry. Um, so I got to work with five sophomore guys who were all, who were all super hungry for Jesus and for accountable community. We bonded deeply, deeply that year. Saw each other really grow in our relationships with God, with God. And things were really, really good. And then the pandemic hit shortly after George Floyd was murdered. And I had given a lot of talks on racial justice up to that point at Northwestern. But at this particular time, I was just enraged and broken, right? Like, how could this happen? Uh, so I started to post a lot more on social media about a better way forward about a way that came through justice. And then I started getting strongly worded texts from one of the five guys that I had been working with that year. He and I were inc incredibly close relationally, so I was kind of confused why the wording was so strong and why he didn't feel like he could just talk to me. Um, he called me to repentance through the text. Uh, he told me I was way off base, asked me to care about the gospel and not about social issues. Things escalated to a point where I didn't recognize the man I had discipled, my friend, and the relationship has ended. And I just want to tell you, I, I honestly have cried many, many nights just thinking about the missed relationship, about the friendship that I no longer have, about missing out on our continued inside jokes and fun we had together. But for whatever reason, his line was my caring about black lives, right? In some lighter ways, since these posts, uh, I've been kicked out so, of some dynasty baseball leagues, that was really fun. Uh, and my, yeah, it, long story, but it was wild. Uh, and my parents actually were excommunicated from the church in our hometown because of my posts. See, Justin, uh, justice often costs us relationships because in justice, we go after the social structures that so many are afraid to lose, right? 
Justice is also going to cost us energy. I can only speak for myself, but the reality is that beginning to understand complex systems and structures like structural racism in America requires time and energy, right? And it's honestly not fun. It can be really discouraging to read about things like the prison-to-school pipeline or the stories of people experiencing oppression. It's infuriating. And at times, it's unbelievable, right, like that people experience what they experience. Justice is going to cost us energy, right? And justice, finally, is also going to cost us influence, opportunities, or growth. See, going back to when I spoke um, on post uh, George Floyd. Uh, I didn't know, sorry, I lost my spot. Going back to when I spoke out post-George Floyd, uh, I don't know how many of you understand like the college ministry experience, but 100% of what I did was funded by people outside of um, the, the ministry. And so I would meet with individuals from my hometown, I'm from different churches, uh, and ask them to support me as I go and uh, back to Northwestern to make disciples. Well, after my social media posts, I lost a ton of money in my ministry. People who had previously been so excited by me going to a college campus to talk about Jesus wanted nothing to do with my ministry at Northwestern anymore. And I'm going to be honest, y'all, like, I'm just, sometimes I'm afraid, like, I think pastors, particularly white men, have, uh, like, a history of, like, putting themselves as the hero of the story. That is not my intention at all here, right? I just want to share this with you to share some of the realities of what happens, right? Because my story is very light compared to some of the things I've heard from my friends who are black, indigenous, or people of color, particularly those who grew up in predominantly white areas, right? I also wanted to bring this one up because the reality is that we are a church who's justice-oriented and seeks to align with those society has deemed on the margins. This will not always, and probably is not, it will not be popular work, right? In fact, because it costs something, it will limit the amount of people who are willing to spend their lives on the margins. So as a result, the growth of our church might suffer more than if we just went the, type, the typical white evangelical route, right? But, and we're going to explore this now, and I hope you are with me, I've decided that the cost of justice, of caring about justice, of doing justice work, is far worth our participation toward a more just society. So, I want to spend some time talking about why the cost is worth it, right? Uh, I'm going to do this by, by bringing up one of the major pushbacks in the American church towards justice. I think the biggest pushback I have heard over the years is just preach the gospel, right? In other words, we do not spend our time on things that pertain to this side of eternity. Tell people what happens to them on the other side of eternity if they are not right with God. Okay, and I, I think if someone in this church had had that pushback, I probably would have heard it by now. So maybe let's contextualize what it might sound like in our church. It might sound like I'm good with justice talk, but just occasionally. We need to make sure we're also preaching the gospel, right? So the question is this. The word gospel means what? Good news. Thank you. Good news is not good news to those who are oppressed or marginalized if it says nothing about the side of eternity, right? And so the question becomes, does what we generally call the gospel, the good news that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and rose again, does that gospel say anything about oppression, social issues, or anything like that? Is there good news for this side of, this side of eternity? And my answer is a resounding yes. You see, I think in our uh, individualistic culture, 
we often deeply misunderstand sin. We have defined or limited our definition of sin to be defined as that which we individually do, think, or say wrongly. And while I think those things are included in the definition of sin, I do not think that they are the only things, right? You see, far more than individual acts, sin is a disruption of wholeness. That's W-H, wholeness. Why was the Garden of Eden so good? Because Adam and Eve lived in wholeness with God, right? They did not experience shame. They did not care about the hierarchical standing. They were not afraid of the presence of God. They experienced God's wholeness, right? And so, sin is antithetical to that wholeness. It disrupts perfection. And as a result of sin being in the world, our world experiences not wholeness, but brokenness, right? Let me give you an example. Disease was not a part of the plan of creation, right? And yet, because sin has infected our world, disease exists and has impact on people, right? Now, just to be clear, I am not saying people experience things like cancer because of their own sin. That's far, that's not true, okay? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is sin is so much deeper and bigger than we give it credit for that the reality of disease existing, the reality of disease existing points to the fact that we live in a broken world, right? In other words, death was not a part of the plan of creation. Death was not a part of the plan of creation. But death exists because sin exists. Oppression, hierarchical strong-arming, marginalization, racism, sexism. These things were not in the plan of creation. And yet sin has has infiltrated our systems, our structures, our laws, our ways of enforcing laws, right? In a way that gives the pathways for things like oppression to knit themselves into the fabric of our society. So if this is true, if sin impacts this level of our world, then the answer to sin that the Bible provides, namely Jesus' life before, on, and after the cross, that answer to sin would respond directly to the impacts of the sin itself. Are you with me? That that was a lot, so let let me um, simplify that a little bit. The reality is Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection right? It answered directly what the consequence of sin was, namely death, right? And so Jesus pays that death and gives us the opportunity to experience life. And so if we have the opportunity to experience life, wholeness, again, that means that things like oppression, marginalization, racism, sexism are also answered in that, right? Like when people experience wholeness, communities experience wholeness, right? Societies experience wholeness. And so the wholeness of the gospel that the gospel provides is not just limited to individual people, right? It becomes something that becomes like more social, has more social impact, right? So when people tell you to just preach the gospel in response to you caring about justice, you can respond that justice is a part of the gospel, right? Let me give you another example. Y'all remember when Peter was eating with the Gentiles, But then some Jewish people came and visited, and Peter got real scared that he was going to be seen with people who were not Jewish. And so he distanced himself, afraid of the judgment of the Jewish guys, of his friends. Paul responds to Peter's actions in Galatians 2 by saying that Peter was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Right? His actions were not in line with the truth of the gospel. See, justice is in line with the true 
truth of the gospel because it too identifies the way that sin still has some sway on this side of eternity. It laments that sin has that sway. And justice steps up to the plate in the power of the Holy Spirit, looks injustice in the eye, and says, you are not winning today, right? You no longer have a hold here. Justice is the means by which we, in the power of the Spirit, long for and seek to restore the wholeness that existed in the garden. Just, let me read it one more time. Justice is the means by which we, in the power of the Spirit, long for and seek to restore the wholeness that existed in the garden. Okay, so the desire for the restoration of wholeness is our first reason the cost is worth it, right? Seeing a more just, a more whole society. Uh, our second reason is found very plainly in our text this morning. Injustice is an attack on the Imago Dei, the Im- image of God in all people. Look back at verses 17 and 18 uh, in chapter 5. Pharaoh said, lazy, that is what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be giving any straw. Yes, you mu- yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. I need some water real quick. Apologies for the awkward silence. All right. Now the Israelites have been enslaved for years, right? Being forced to give free labor to the Egyptians. And yet Pharaoh, who's the great deceiver, calls these Israelites lazy and uses this as justification for requiring more of them. Now, it's, it's a little wild to me that in our country, people have used the same lazy trope, particularly for people of Mexican heritage, right? When we're talking about the ways in which we sort of belittle people. Outside of the general name-calling, the framing of people of, let me restart. Outside of name, uh, general name-calling, the framing of people groups in particular ways is an age-old trick used to justify the exploitation of people, is it not? Like how we talk about groups of people leads, can lead to exploitation if it's always negative, 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 therefore these people don't deserve as much, right? This is why it's so important to talk about things like race when talking about injustice in our context. While random acts of injustice do happen against people regardless of skin color, in our context, the overwhelming reality is that injustice is experienced at a far higher rate by black people and people of, country, people of color in our country because of the lies and stereotypes that are perpetuated about people based on race in order to justify this exploitation, right? This is a direct attack on the image of God. And the reality is our world is a lot better when every tribe, tongue, and nation is thriving and no people group is constantly under attack. Uh, I, you know, I was worried about uh, looking like a hero. Let's go ahead and show ways I mess up. Um, I remember a time where I did not step up in a situation where I should have. I was in Evanston, and a person with mental illness was standing in a parking spot, just sort of in the road. Uh, Someone was trying to pull into that spot, and they started to yell at them. The person in the car yelled at them. Now, the person standing in the spot got really overwhelmed and wasn't sure what was happening and just said over and over, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. They finally moved. Uh, the person pulled into the spot, and the person driving the car got out and continued to berate the person um, who was confused. And I, I'm like right there. I'm the only one around, and I just stood there. I, did, I literally said nothing. 
And I'm so upset when I think about it. Instead of standing with that person and affirming their image of godness, imageness, of, you know what I mean, uh, I let them believe the things that the other person was saying about them were true, right? The reality is that shame of my interaction at that time often crushes me, even makes me want to completely withdraw from the work. But our failures yesterday do not determine our response today, right? We get to see next week that Moses' failure today does not determine his response next week, right? I don't think we understand how much we're missing as a society and as a church because of the weight of oppression that is on particular people that constantly attempts to rob, rob them of their dignity and humanity, right? If people had the capacity to be concerned with things besides how they operate in a world that does not want them around, we would experience so much more wholeness as a society, right? Because God is such a big God, his image bearers are incredibly diverse and unique. And in that diversity and uniqueness, do we get to see more of who God is? Yes, we've built up dividing walls and we've marginalized, and we miss out on some of the richness we might get to experience if we were in a just society, right? Here's the reality. We will experience a just society and a whole society in the new heavens and new earth, right? I, wanna, I know I use this passage all the time, but spoiler, I'm going to continue to use it. Uh, so let's look at Revelation 21 real quick. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. But because this whole and just society that is even uh, explained here in Revelation 21, because it exists one day, that does not give us permission to not care about it on this side of eternity, right? This is why Jesus prays on earth as it is in heaven. It's why Jesus, when he hears of his friend Lazarus, who is sick, he ends up traveling to Lazarus for three days. It's why Jesus, when he arrives and Martha tells Jesus that Lazarus had died, that is why Jesus wept, right? Yes, he was, he was sad about his friend dying, but Jesus knew Lazarus was about to get up, right? See, the word they used for Jesus weeping was a word that means an angry cry. Jesus was angry that sickness and death still exist on this side of eternity. He was angry that for a moment, the enemy still had a hold on parts of this side of eternity. Jesus wept because our society was not yet a Revelation 21 society, right? So I give my permission and I give you permission to weep at the reality of injustice and brokenness on this side of eternity, right? I give myself permission to be angry at that things are not as they ought to be. That's why I pray on earth as it is in heaven, in Chicago, as it is in heaven, in Uptown, as it is in heaven, right? And guess what, y'all? Jesus didn't just stop with the weeping, right? Jesus knew that his tears were not the payment for the penalty that sin required. See, Jesus lived a perfect life. 
He lived in a way that led to justice and wholeness wherever he went. And as a result, he did not accrue the penalty that sin required, the penalty of death. And yet, when Jesus was brought to Pontius Pilate, he was silent when they accused him of a crime, right? Jesus was silent in the face of injustice toward himself because he knew his death would lead to our justification. Jesus was silent because he knew death might think it was winning that day, but that his death was the final blow on death's own death, right? Jesus was broken so that we might once again experience wholeness. It is by his wounds we are healed, and by his resurrection we have victory over the injustice and unwholeness that seem to be winning today, right? Okay, I've got one more reason that this is good, and then I'm in my seat, all right? Uh, One more reason that the work of justice is worth counting the costs. Justice work draws us closer to God because God is the God of justice. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness, and this is um, the psalmist talking about God, to God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and foundation go before you. Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves justice. The Lord loves justice and will not forsake his faithful ones. The reality is that justice is a part of what God does and who God is. God's name has been such a big theme in Exodus, and we're actually going to really explore this next week, but it's been such a big theme uh, because it is an affront to God's name that his people are enslaved and being treated unjustly, right? And if this injustice is an affront to God's name, what does this say about our God? It says that he is the God of justice the God of wholeness, the God of abundant life. See, when Moses comes to God, rejected by Pharaoh and rejected by his own people, he asks God, like, why did you even send me, God? Like, if this is what was going to happen, I'm just making things worse. Why am I here? But I want to look one more time at chapter 6, verses uh, 2 to 8. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. I appeared to Abram, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. What reasons does God give for returning to the Israelites, for sending Moses back to Egypt? He says, because I am the Lord, right? He gives his name and because he remembers his covenant. In other words, it is on the basis of God's character that he's liberating the Israelites. Justice flows from him because he is the God of justice. So in seeking justice, we are occupying the same space as God himself. We are in lockstep with God and we get to participate in the work with him. Uh, The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, 
but it bends toward justice, right? The reality is God is establishing his just kingdom with or without us. His kingdom will come and his will will be done regardless of our participation. But I'll be honest, y'all, I want to be in the room when it happens. I want to see and I want to participate in the work of justice with God, getting to know his character and his care for me and all image bearers in the process. The cost of justice is worth counting. Let me read Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven, the whole, the just, the abundant kingdom, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Count the cost with me. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.